The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. It seems every day now that we're told by some government official or mainstream media scold that we must pay more, restrict our activities more, change how we speak, and little by little lose the freedom we once took for granted. The draconian pandemic lockdowns are a case in point. The public good became of paramount importance, overshadowing any sense of individual freedom. And now the climate scare is increasingly giving woke, power-hungry politicians yet another reason to sacrifice our rights as individuals, this time supposedly to save the planet. Jay, is this part of a dangerous trend towards increasing collectivism and perhaps even communism? Uh, Tom, more so than any of our listeners can imagine, I have really woken up to the fact in the last six months that we are battling communism full out around the world. We're battling evil beyond everyone's wildest imagination. I'm starting a series of articles calling a spade a spade. There's no longer any reason to tap dance around these people and think they're well-meaning but just have poor policies. These are evil people trying to subjugate and enslave the entire world. And actually, I've been reading Mike Gamel for a long, long time. And to tell you the truth, he was onto it well before I was. So it's exciting to have somebody that really has a historical understanding of how things have been going off the rails for quite some time. So, Tom, uh, introduce Mike to our listeners. Sure, Jay. So our guest today is Mike Gamel. Mike is the founder and president of Restore Our American Republic, or ROAR, which you can learn about on the web at restoreouramericanrepublic.org. ROAR's mission is to initiate political and cultural reform for the purpose of restoring the foundation of individualism in America. Prior to founding ROAR, Mike was a geologist specializing in groundwater resource development, so similar to you, Jay, a technical writer and a freelance writer addressing environmental and other cultural issues. Mike Gamal's work in recent years has focused on the role of the public interest policy and its misuse in the area of environmental research and public health. This has resulted in the entrenchment of an anti-individualist ideology in government and government agencies of the U.S. that is hostile, personal liberty and freedom of choice. And Mike, you know, I hope we're going to talk a little bit about the Great Reset. So welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Yeah. As Tom said, uh, you and I met 
very long ago, in earlier in our professional careers, hydrogeologists, groundwater geologists. And then I, I saw your change in, in focus. Tell our audience how you became so involved with discovering how the country has gone wrong and then focusing on climate and, and COVID as issues, as an example for how that wrong has really gone off the tracks. Well, I came out of college as kind of a tree hugger type, semi-tree hugger, let's say. Fell into some of that indoctrination that we all get. And uh, my father uh, was a wise man and said, uh, Mike, could you read this book? And he, rather than browbeating me at family dinners, and it was a time for truth. And it kind of set me off on the trail of learning about free markets and capitalism and that sort of thing. And then later I came across the work of Ayn Rand with uh, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, which was really captured me, the, the powerful logic combined with the passionate conviction. It was just irresistible to me. But I did see an area in philosophy that I, I needed to, it seemed like there was not, nothing there. It was kind of the, the area of pollution and contamination. And I needed to see uh, you know, something that handled that. I came across a few years later a work by Edith Efron, The Apocalyptics, where she talked about the background contributions of nature, such as volatile organics into the air. That was a real alarm going off for me. I realized, okay, this is, this is kind of the missing link. And then later I saw some things by Bruce Ames with comparative standards from nature to uh, the industrial and knew that I kind of had, I had the elements that I needed to start writing. And I started writing with a newsletter that I wrote called The Free Market Environmentalist. And I guess I, let me back up for a second. I, had, I came out thinking, you know, the industry was the bad guy. But when I started working on these cleanups and I saw how much money was being wasted and so forth, and I saw the property rights approach to pollution, I, I finally saw, okay, I've got it all wrong. I've got to start writing and, you know, put this right, which I did with the Free Market Environmentalist a newsletter to start. And then in uh, 2009, the Climate Gate scandal came along, and I sensed that something was really systemic going on there. I was fortunate. I had a couple of colleagues that to bounce ideas off, and they kind of played this friendly devil's advocate with me, and it was extremely helpful. And we went back and forth for several months, and I finally, you know, it finally came to me. And then Jay and I wrote the article on science after Climate Gate. And that was that got me into the climate area. And then as far as COVID goes, when I saw the term public in the public health mentioned in COVID, I started to suspect maybe the same mechanism was working here, this public funding. And as it turned out, that was it was exactly what was going on. Well, our listeners might be interested in how my path arrived at the same place as yours, although from a different beginning. I somehow never was a tree hugger. I certainly was a lover of, of nature, but uh, spending a great deal of time in the woods and hiking and mountain climbing, uh, I recognized that uh, by and large nature is out to kill us and that our need to protect nature from us was, was really quite wrongheaded. And when I was asked to work with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to help develop a set of legislation, regulation to protect the things we need most from nature, water, soil, air, and so on. It was uh, quite a, a wonderful exercise. But around uh, 1970, very bad people 
took over the whole thing and made uh, man into the enemy. And uh, everything really went awry from that point in time. But I didn't go into the constitutional area as to how the country got where we are, the most magnificent government uh, in the history of man. But I've read much of your work, and I really consider you, at least from my position, I consider you a constitutional scholar. How did you really begin going all the way back a couple centuries to see where we were intended to go and uh, where we had come out the other end? Well, I'd love to consider myself a constitutional scholar, but really what I'm dependent on is a true scholar, um, Henry Holzer, an attorney and a constitutional scholar. And one of his works was the, the American Constitution and Ayn Rand's Inner Contradiction. And in there, he asked a question in his introduction, and it really caught my attention. He said, what had subverted America's founding principles of individual rights and their necessary corollary limited government? And he lists this answer of, it was America's inner contradiction of the altruist collectivist ethics, quoting the Ayn Rand. So when I saw that, I said, well, what, what's the connection here to the, the Constitution? And then I, it didn't take long as I started thumbing through the book to find it. Very early in the front of the book, it says there was a Supreme Court case only seven years after the Constitution had been ratified. And it was on a fundamental issue of property rights. And just as Chase had this to say, it seems to me that the right of property in its origin is conferred by society. And I saw that and I thought, what about natural rights? There's no discussion of society and discussion of rights by most of the public statements of the founding fathers. And when I saw that, I, I sort of began to understand what Holzer meant about the shaky philosophic foundation underneath the Constitution. And as time went on, I kind of saw the connection to our essay on ClimateGate that we did in 2010 and the takeover of the environmental science uh, via public funding. But I realized, you know, this public and public interest, it was extremely destructive and it was operating in the destruction of the railroad industry. It did great harm to electric power generation and transmission, public education, and many other areas. Well, you know, before the United States of America, there has never been a government that was built on an idea of really freedom. And so it's not surprising that when our forefathers developed the Constitution, the only way to go from there was down. Everything tends to fall apart with time, including governments. And, and certainly uh, since the ratification of our Constitution, evil forces have worked to tear it down to the point that this current administration is ignoring the Constitution. I mean, they just act like it isn't there. Again, I always like to throw in a dab of optimism to our listeners week after week because uh, we're pretty much at the bottom of the barrel now. But uh, in the midterm election of uh, this November, we're going to find out that by and large, the rank and file of this country have had enough. Uh, they're going to throw all of these people out for sure in the House of Representatives, very likely in the Senate. And then we'll uh, move toward getting a conservative president in two years. So as bad as things are now, I'm quite 
confident they'll they'll turn around. But what you have been writing about lately that fascinates me is how climate change and the uh, the pandemic has been used better than ever any construct to destroy the constitution on uh, which this country is founded. Could you speak to that? I think the one principle that's been used over and over and over, and I, I realize over time how important it is, is this general welfare principle. And Thomas Jefferson called it a, a mere grammatical quibble, but it's anything but that. Let me give one example here with Fauci to see where he's coming from and how, how destructive he is as to what you're talking about. So Fauci had an exchange with Congressman Jordan, and uh, who was uh, from Ohio. And Fauci said, well, Congressman Jordan mentioned the people of Ohio. I'm looking at it from a public health perspective. And he was talking about the infringement upon our liberties. I certainly want to get my life back. But I also put as a higher priority the health and safety of the American public. What I realized here, because I've been looking at this public interest, was he's talking about an abstraction, the public, as if it's a living, breathing, individual thing, which it isn't. And this is the mistake that's been made over and over and over in our country. And Fauci, he just doesn't value individual, living, breathing human beings, the way he does his invisible, non-living abstraction. And there is a way to fight that. And I just kind of came up with a reply that uh, Jordan didn't make this, but this is what I would have done if I'd wanted to challenge that. And I would have said, you know, Dr. Fauci is making the the terrible error of, of mistaken an abstraction, the public, for individual lives of people. The public's an abstraction. It doesn't think, it doesn't breathe, it doesn't feel... Only individuals can do that. This is why his one-size-fits-all lockdowns and mandates fail so badly. We're not all identical in our responses to health risks or anything else, which is why it's essential to be left free to assess our own risks versus benefits. This is why the government should be restricted in activities to testing and quarantining the sick, not locking down or dictating to those who, as far as Fauci or anyone knows, are perfectly healthy. So it's all in the in the framing of the arguments. I've seen groups with no political connections triumph over highly entrenched and well-funded opponents. I mean, the classic example is the homeschooling movement, 50 wins in 50 states. They were a ragtag group. They had no money, they had no political connections, but they knew that they believed in, they had a right to educate their own children. So if you can frame it in a moral fashion, you can win. I mean, and the opposite is true. People that don't do it, like J.P. Morgan Bank, which has a zillion dollars, they let a ragtag group, the Rainforest Defense Initiative, frame the argument against them over climate change and ended up capitulating. The progressive left really understands this. That's why they call themselves progressives. They understand how to frame issues. I mean, I've read, I read a book by a progressive, George Lakoff, which goes into it in great depth and I highly recommend to people who want to understand the importance of framing issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something called Free Market Environmentalism Newsletter. Is that on the internet for people to have a look at? It was done many years ago. It is not on the internet. Uh, a couple of the essays are on the Restore Our American Republic website. The, uh, 
ecology's ancestry and nature's value. They're also, Jay was kind enough to publish those in uh, rational readings on environmental concerns. You can also find them there. Yeah. Okay. I'll link to that in the podcast when it goes online on Monday. Well, how initially was America so different as a new country, which I alluded to, and how has the enemy specifically tried to tear down the brilliance of our founding fathers a couple centuries ago? Well, it started out, I mean, America was the child of the Enlightenment. I mean, that was probably the most dynamic era in history. I mean, you had these incredible advances in science and history in industry, in the humanities. And there was just this boundless optimism. Everything was open. Anything was possible. And Jefferson kind of typified the optimism when he talked to his nephew. He says, fix reason firmly in her seat and call to her tribunal every fact, every opinion. Question with boldness even the existence of God, because if there is one, he must more approve of homage of reason than that of blindfolded fear. So taxes were low. Education was essentially private, and it was just there was just this intellectual ferment going on. Now, what happened was these contradictions and omissions of the probably the most um, significant being the general welfare principle. But um, you see it early on in certain things. Take for instance Alexander Hamilton. Now we just have the Revolutionary War. Think about this. And one of the big things that ignited it was, you know, the Boston Tea Party and their being upset about the mercantilism of the East India Company. So that was a very big deal to them. But here's Hamilton saying, a national debt, if it's not excessive, will be to us a blessing. It'll be a powerful cement of the union. It'll also create a necessity for keeping up taxation without being oppressive and will be a spur to industry. So Hamilton saw this kind of a patronage to the government, and that was, you know, not a good sign. I mean, later on, you see, uh, 20 years later, you see other things uh, where the same principle, this um, general welfare principle, Andrew Jackson, he called it preserving the integrity of the state of Georgia, which is really the same thing as the public interest. Now, he marched a completely peaceful Indian tribe, the Cherokees, 1,500 miles because he didn't didn't like, I don't know what he didn't like about them. They were completely peaceful. But, you know, he, he cited the integrity of the state of Georgia. Then we had, there was subsidizing you know, canal building, again, justified by this general welfare idea. And more and more, uh, as the 19th century advanced, you see this reference to the union. There was a big push after the Civil War for compulsory state schooling for the sake of the union. And this is probably the influence of the German philosopher Hegel. Uh, many American students after the, the Civil War were going over there to study. And John Dewey was coming out with things were probably influenced by Hegel. His comment, the individual is always a social individual. He has no existence by himself. He lives in, for, and by society. So we see this, this collectivism and individualism starting to decline. And... Um, then we had, you know, not too long after that, the destruction of the railroad industry and the rise of big business and that sort of thing. So it was sort of downhill from there. Mike and I have some real history connections. I think our listeners would be interested in tying a few things that were said. The movement of 1,500 miles of the Indians was 
called The Trail of Tears. And one of my very closest friend's grandparents were in that Trail of Tears and moved 1,500 miles from the Carolinas uh, into Oklahoma. Totally cruel. Uh, Another real-life connection, Mike and I wrote a paper some years ago of where the government went wrong in, uh, in research, really in taking over research and industry and government getting into bed. And it all started with the success of the development of the atomic bomb by many of America's greatest scientists. Of course, uh, Einstein had been involved initially. I must admit, I enjoy telling our listeners that I will probably be the only person they know in their lifetime who actually knew Albert Einstein in a way. Uh, I was a, a freshman and sophomore at Princeton when he and I would pass each other on the street frequently, me going to class and he going to his office. So uh, we had what I call a nodding acquaintance. But it was the atomic bomb success that led uh, the U.S. government to decide, uh, sadly, under Eisenhower and uh, Eisenhower's science director, Vannevar Bush, that, wow, if the government can make the atomic bomb, the government can uh, do anything better than private industry. And Mike and I wrote a uh, paper about it some years ago. But I'd like you to explain in more detail how the government and industry got in bed with each other, explain how it worked and why it's been a very bad thing. Okay, well, I guess you could say we were invigorated after World War II, all this science and technology was put into play and thousands of American lives were saved by it. There's no question about it. So I think Bush just looked at that and said, well, if we can do it in wartime, we can do it in peacetime. What he didn't understand was that the actions taken during the war were for to protect our rights. And that's a universal thing. But in peacetime, there aren't any universal values. And because of that, you're talking about, you're saying, well, this is in the public interest to have uh, science or technology development. Well, who's going to be the public? I mean, there's no universal need or desire. Some people like science, some people don't. And because of that, what I found is, or what we found is, this this four-step process happens time after time after time saying this is in the public interest to do science research. And it really isn't. And they have, because of that, the second thing that happens is they can't really define it. Uh, You get these vague or arbitrary definitions. You can't have any objective or rational resolution of things. You've got to limit people that can, you know, get in on this because there's just, you can't, you can't do it rationally. So that's when influence peddling starts to become Uh, the order of the day. And whoever the best influence peddlers is going to get their way. Now, uh, in the one with DDT and the starting of the EPA and all of that, that was uh, the people who wanted to, the environmentalists who wanted to ban uh, DDT. And they were very effective. And they basically, I think they had uh, Ruckelshaus, the EPA commissioner bought and paid for because he wrote letters for them afterward after he got out of his uh, agency. So what happens is the most effective influence peddlers take over. And 
what comes along with them is whatever their you know, paradigm is, and they get entrenched with them and their paradigm. And we've seen this in scientific research, this, this climate change, for example. I mean, how many years have we been, decades, they've been shooting holes in climate change when it was uh, you know, global cooling and global warming, and then you know, they missed the temperature uh, measurements were bad, and they don't get the cloud cover, and there's just they don't get the exchange of CO2 with the, the oceans, and the modeling was a travesty. And yet these things go on and on and on. They still get funding. And it's because these people are entrenched, they control the grants, and that's why it happens. And the same thing has happened with COVID. Mm-hmm. Didn't Eisenhower warn about some sort of a collusion between industry and government? He did. He, um, mm-hmm. what, I forget what he called it exactly, but he, the military industrial complex. Yeah, he was talking about yeah. that, which is real, but there's also this uh, industry complex with government, which is operates in the same manner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, capitalism has been damaged dramatically uh, in the last few decades. I think everybody is really coming to grips with it right now as this uh, administration has harmed basically every rank and file member of the United States with gas prices, with food prices in, in every way. And that's why I'm so optimistic and confident that really every morning, a few thousand Americans wake up, realize they made a huge mistake in uh, voting for this Democratic administration. They're not going to make the mistake again. It's going to take a while Uh, One thing I like to tell our audience over and over again is that when we uh, take over the House of Representatives in November, which we will uh, without any question, no one can challenge that, the House of Representatives controls the budget. Now, the president can continue to pass executive orders. There can be other things going on that aren't good, but they can't spend any new money. They can spend old money, old legislation, regulations but there'll be no new expenditures of money once the uh, Republicans take over the House. Not to say the Republicans are all better than the Democrats or will do a better job, but uh, but they will. They will not waste any more billions and billions of dollars for the coming two years until the next presidential election. So there is definitely cause for optimism. At the same time, I think it may be a decade or two before we could bring the country back to what we hoped it would look like or our founding fathers uh, hoped it would look like centuries ago. Where do you stand futuristically uh, with regard to where the country can go? Well, I don't know if I'm as much an optimist as you are, Jay. You're the uh, Mike, Mike, nobody is. Nobody, nobody is. is, exactly. But, I, but it, being around you, you've rubbed off on me without question. And, and, I, and I do, you know, when I come across these horrible things, I think there's got to be, you know, a way forward we can get past this. And, you know, I think of you a lot of times, what would, you, what would Jay say about this or look into this? So there is a way forward. I do think we can get back to, you know, an approximation within 20 years. So here's a few thoughts on that. Billions and billions have been malinvested uh, to deal with environmental regulations, among many other things. And so much control of industry has been exerted by regulatory agencies. They've got enormous arbitrary power. That's gotta be reined in. This is where industry and reformers 
need to understand how to frame issues in terms of values and principles. And if they want to start using this general welfare, they can say, you know, the general welfare is not being served if the ability of individuals to act on principles is impeded. For let's just say for groundwater cleanups, a principle approach might be, uh, you know, if a company spills something in an aquifer, they don't have to clean up the entire aquifer. Maybe they have to monitor it, but they can clean it up at the wellhead. So that gives them the flexibility and takes away some of the arbitrary things. Also kind of bringing in this, considering what nature puts into the mix is a way to address some of these excessively conservative pollution standards. That would be taking into work some of Bruce Ames work and using that in framing these issues. I would like to mention uh, one person I think who is just stands head and shoulders above the crowd and that's Alex Epstein. Nobody knows how to frame issues like Alex Epstein. The moral case for fossil fuels and fossil future. People in industry, they've got to understand what Epstein does. They, start, they need to start following his work. The only thing I don't like about him, he hasn't cloned himself about 500 times over. Other than that, he's you know the greatest thing since sliced bread. Well, Mike, uh, Alex was uh, Tom and my guest last week uh, on the show, The Other Side of the Story. And uh, he was quite terrific as a guest. And I'm in the process. His first book, you just mentioned it, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, was outstanding. He is a philosopher trained at Duke. And his second book, 420 pages long, is uh, titled Fossil Future. And I have promoted it widely, though I recommend nobody read more than 10 pages a day. It is a philosophy book. He has a tendency to use a few extra words where one or two would do, but you use the right word uh, framing. And I just wrote an article from the book about framing that will be published uh, next week at uh, cfact.org. So uh, I second your motion for if you really want to invest in thoroughly understanding the evil people that are trying to deprive the world of uh, available, inexpensive energy to improve their lives. Nobody but does it better than Alex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have to go for a break for commercial at this point. When we get back, Mike, can we talk about the Great Reset? I think a lot of people, first of all, don't know what it is. And those who do don't really think it's much of a risk. But I think, in fact, it's a huge risk. Can we talk about that in the second part? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Well, this is Tom Harris and Dr. Jay Lair. We'll be right back after the break. So stay tuned. All right. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine-based nasal spray Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. 
In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan. A plan based on real science that responds to the real world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure. A plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. We're back with Mike Gamel, founder and president of Restore Our American Republic, or ROAR. It's on the web at restoreouramericanrepublic.org. So, Mike, I think a lot of listeners probably wonder, how does what we're talking about relate to the Great Reset? So, can you tell us, first of all, what is the Great Reset and why should we pay attention to it? The Great Reset is, I would say, it's just what Agenda 21 was or is. Um, it's a UN initiative to take away the individual rights and cede their sovereignty to an unelected bureaucratic uh, organization such as the UN. And they want to use sustainability and control uh, energy. They want to basically have control over everyone's lives. And they couch it in very flowery terms. They use vague things like we we may need to make radical change or we need to be sustainable and these things. And what it really means is just a totalitarian state with a, some nice ver verbiage in front of it. And it's happening on the local level, uh, Agenda 21, which is basically the Great Reset. It's happening at the local level in the U.S. They come in and they do this flowery uh, spiel. And before people know it, their local government has been ceded to a unelected bureaucrats at a regional level. And it's mm -hmm. happened all over the country. And it's, um, it's part of the Great Reset. And that is what's happening. The United Nations has this um, total reorganization idea. It's really basically Marxism, but it's kind of repackaged with being be in sync with the environment and be sustainable and all that. Is this because they think that democracies and free societies make the wrong decisions and that they can make the right decision. I think you hit it right on the nose there. I think if you look at people like, I don't know, Bill Gates, maybe is a good example. I mean, I know he was an entrepreneur for many years, but he's this, I know best. I mean, he's stomped over people when he was at Microsoft, but even at um, the World Health Organization, which he basically controls through his funding. Mm -hmm. Any research that's not focused on vaccines just gets squashed. Mm -hmm. And he's taken testing and, and things into India and other third world countries. And 
hundreds of thousands of people have been injured by these vaccines and they keep, you know, finally India kicked them out, but they never, they never questioned, well, we, you know, we know best, we're the technocratic people and we should be allowed to do this. Yeah, and I understand that this character, Klaus Schwab, actually has a fair number of leaders in his pocket and that they actually train people like Trudeau, our prime minister, through Klaus Schwab's group. Yeah, he's been training people for at least 15 years, probably longer. Mm -hmm. So once they go through his thing, um, you're right, they basically are going to you know, follow whatever he's talking about. These people yeah. think long term. And they the thing that's hard to grasp for me was it's not some cigar smoking conspiracy backroom kind of thing. They basically hide in plain sight, but they use these vague illusions to sustainability and and this sort of thing to make it, you know, look other than what it really is. So it's it's very insidious. It's hard to fight. And Tom DeWeese is the undisputed leader in, you know, exposing these things for what they really are. Mm -hmm. Klaus Schwab, by the way, is the head of the World Economic Forum. And I take it the WEF plays a pretty big role in all this. Yeah, I think they work very closely with uh, the United Nations. And they're, you know, it's just a very close association. It is the personification of evil. And I keep throwing that out, because I am thoroughly convinced that the average uh, middle-of-the-road American, not a, a liberal and not a conservative, just can't get their arms around the fact that these people that we have just mentioned really want to destroy society as it is and then take it over. They all think they are smarter, and Tom alluded to it before, that they actually think they can run the world better and that it'll be a better place. Of course, they are, in my mind, insane, uh, but that's the feeling. And the average American just can't grasp that kind of evilness. So uh, really, in the next number of weeks, I'm committed myself to, as I say, call a spade a spade and let people know that it's, while I'm a leading optimist, the situation is way worse than I or others have thought it to be in recent decades. I'd like to bring it historically up a little, or let's say go back a little bit, but not too far. In my reading of history, I have found both uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Delano Roosevelt not to have been uh, warriors for good and the best for the American people. I've always felt in some way they planted some of the seeds that have allowed what we're talking about now uh, to take root. Do you have any thoughts about that, Mike? Yeah. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was one of the first progressives. Uh, he turned uh, policies into action. And the progressive movement was not all bad. There was big business abuses. But what Teddy Roosevelt did was basically took a sledgehammer to what he should have used a scalpel. And when the railroads were having trouble uh, making money and they kept doing more regulation and more regulation, what he should have done is just say, get rid of all this regulation and all the subsidies, everything else, and just let the free market go. But he didn't do that. Instead, he just put the final nail in the coffin and uh, with the Hepburn Act, and that was uh, in 1906. And at that point, there was no 
rate changes without uh, permission from the government. So the railroads became a government entity, essentially. Franklin Roosevelt was much worse uh, by that time. They had were being very honest about their, you know, we're his brain trusts were saying, well, we're we're turning away from having things where the individuals are doing things for the sake of individuals. I mean, he was very much like that. The most destructive thing he unleashed in terms of our, what we're looking at at present is he was one of the leaders in uh, establishing the United Nations. It started right after World War II, and uh, he was developing it with uh, Churchill and others during the war. And that organization, if you look at some of the statements by Bertrand Russell and some of the other ones, they had no intention of being something to be on the range of individual rights. It was always about, uh, you know, this greater organization that was above the level of the nation controlling things. And that's where sovereignty was. So Roosevelt was very instrumental in uh, bringing the United Nations into life. And I think we're starting to see how destructive they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You said in your writings that our real problem is neither socialism or capitalism, but something else. Would you explain that? I think I was quoting, let's see, give me a second here. Yeah, that was the phrase I took from Jeffrey Tucker of the Brownstone Institute. Now, it's not mine, but I agree with it. So what Tucker was referring to was this thing that we've been talking about, Agenda 21. And Fauci was saying, uh, I'll read just a little bit of it, because this is, this is really Agenda 21 language. He says, uh, living in greater harmony with nature will require changes in human behavior, as well as other radical changes that may take decades to achieve. Rebuilding the infrastructure of human existence from cities to homes to workplaces. In such a transformation, we'll need to prioritize changes in human behavior that constitute risks for the emergence of infectious diseases. Now, that sounds kind of flowery until you literally bore down into it. And when you see what, what, you know, what does he really mean by we will need to prioritize changes? I mean, he's talking about somebody you know, changing it for us. So as, as Tucker commented, it, it's not really socialism or capitalism. It's this kind of thing that uh, the philosopher Rousseau, the anti-enlightenment uh, philosopher, who was kind of the grandfather of environmentalism, I mean, he would have loved it. So that's, this is the kind of verbiage that um, we're getting out of these, uh, you know, the Great Reset and all of that sort of thing. They're all, they're all basically, and this is where the, the public interest and and how it's entrenched these paradigms, it's hard to understand how all these people at the national and international level, they're all on the same page. It's because they're reading from the same page. These, once you put in the public interest and you infuse this, it goes you know, all around and they're all exposed to it and they basically buy into it. Hmm. So it's not a coincidence that Canada now is talking about restricting nitrogen, nitrous oxide, the same way as Holland. You know, they're using the same language back and forth. Both the president of Holland, as well as our prime minister, are both graduates from Klaus Schwab's group. So it sounds there like. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. And this nitrogen thing is, is crazy. We, we had Will Happer uh, as a guest from Princeton University, and he's shown that N2O, nitrous oxide, is not a serious problem in the least when it comes to climate because it's, uh, you know, it just doesn't cause much. 
And yet that seems to be the primary driver, according to the Great Reset people, that seems to be the primary driver for preventing them from using enough fertilizer. Well, that brings back to my point of optimism. We all know that uh, Sri Lanka stopped using nitrogen, converted to organic food, and the entire country is starving today. The same will happen in the Netherlands and everywhere. Farmers will go broke. We're approaching a point where everybody will recognize the insanity that is going on. And taking it to the food supply actually is more horrendous than anything to do with climate change, because in fact, man has no impact on the climate. We're not getting warmer. Sea levels aren't rising. We don't have more hurricanes, but people are going to be starving and farmers are going to be bankrupt. So, you know, we're, we're going to come to the worst case scenario. People will wake up, not without gigantic damage, but sadly, I'm afraid that's where we're going to have to go before we really begin to rise up against the evil people we're talking about. But mm-hmm. I always go back historically. One of the great books I had occasion to listen to on tape was Churchill walking through destiny. And uh, it went through basically almost a century of his life, all of World War I and World War II. And a good deal of it was devoted to being in basements underground in London, listening to the bombs go off. And what it told me is we've been in worse places to a certain extent, even than now, and we are going to be able to fight our way back. Yeah, I think listeners might be interested to hear that the Epoch Times was reporting that the policies to fight climate change, of course, with nitrous oxide reductions in the Netherlands is actually going to lead to a third of all their farms closing. A third, and they're a major breadbasket for Europe. Jay, do you see the same sort of focus on farms being a problem, according to these great reset people in the United States? Certainly that's happening now in Canada, too. Uh, yes, and it's, it's insane. Uh, I've spent a great deal of my career in agriculture. And, you know, without nitrogen, our uh, yields uh, drop dramatically. We really cannot. I mean, we've learned to feed the world. Uh, because of advances in agricultural engineering and the development of, uh, of fertilizers and using, learning how to use them, it's been amazing. So we're going backwards and the number of people starving, which has been reduced to a minimum across the world in the next few years, will increase very sadly. But as a result, people will wake up. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I suppose you could argue that what's going on now is worse than all the bombings in World War II. Uh, It is an argument, but it's going to have an impact on more people. And uh, we're going to come out the other end. I I have been predicting recently, and every week I get more confident, we're, we're going to turn the corner in public understanding of the evil forces against us within the next three years. The pendulum is going to begin swinging in a positive direction in about 10 years. And I think in 20 years, we'll have our country back and and much of the world. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm not alone in this. In fact, we had a show two weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, 
with Tariqi Ciccioni, who worked for GE for 40 years in Europe. And when I expressed my optimism, he came out chapter and verse with many, many positive points that are going on around Europe, things that I was not aware of. So uh, by no means am I alone uh, in feeling that the uh, end of this evil crescendo is not that far down the road. I sure hope you're right, because, you know, we built up world population because of our increased agriculture, because of the use of nitrogen, because of the use of fossil fuels, and they want to end it all. And you're sort of left with this massive population that requires the fertilizers and requires fossil fuels. So you could end up with mega dev, quite frankly. Well, I don't quite agree with that. Uh, One of the things we've learned in recent decades is the better off families become economically, the less children they have. And 30 years ago, you read that we were overpopulating and the world population was going to exceed 12 billion. Today, because we've become more affluent, population has dropped and nobody right now is predicting very much more than we have now, eight and a half to nine billion. So clearly, starvation as a result of what the evil people are doing now is going to increase. But the problem is not uh, an overexpanding population. We really have population under control. And uh, economically, in the coming decades, we'll have a bigger economic problem as populations stabilize and decline than we will have a, as a result of an increasing population. So that's mm-hmm. one area I'm not too worried about. No, that's good to hear. Yeah, for sure. Well, Mike, uh, tell the audience about your forthcoming mini book, which expands on the things we've talked about today. Well, the title is Restoring the Republic in America, Why We Need It, How to Achieve It. And it's kind of a culmination of my work going back about 20 years concerning how it's been undermined and knowing that, how we can restore it. What I want to try to do with it is explain why and how the foundational ideas were corrupted and how that's sort of led us in a gradual downhill path over 150 years. After covering that and explaining you know, the sequence and how this led to that, then I'm gonna try and go over you know, how do we restore it, that foundation focusing on framing issues with moral principles. I'm gonna start with the current picture in, in public health and the pandemic and I'll illustrate how that underlying issue, the public interest has operated to cause such enormous damage and entrench these really destructive paradigms and some rather evil, evil people. And, then move in and just talk a little bit about how it's affected some other industries, such as the railroads, uh, electric power, scientific research, and, and public education. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's going to be really useful to answer people who say, sure, thousands of people have had terrible side effects from the injection, but look at the benefit to society at large. You know, they have web pages that show all these young athletes, for example, male and female, who've had really terrible, terrible life stories about the impact of the injections. But the response, of course, all the time is, oh, yeah, but the public interest was served because it was an overarching problem we had to solve. So these people, they don't really matter. So, I mean, I think you're going Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, you can get away with it if you you think that, which they do, clearly. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
Because I read these stories, you know, about people end up with permanent tremors, for example, who were otherwise healthy athletes. And now that not only can they not even function you know, on the athletic field, but they have these permanent disabilities. And I mean, I can see suicides going through the roof. And, and yet they would then justify it by saying, but the collective good was served. And, and this is very you know, ruthless, quite frankly. You know, uh, you don't, I don't know that I told you this uh, yet, Tom, but uh, my wife and I, well, for much of the last 30 years, have been taking a cruise somewhere in the world uh, just about every year. And we were scheduled to uh, leave around the 1st of November for Rome and on to Turkey, Greece and Jerusalem, when uh, an organization that I belong to and hold dear called the American Council on Science and Health, their chief biochemist, Josh Bloom, knowing I was leaving and would need uh, to take some kind of uh, shot before I could go to Rome, he wrote me a very lengthy letter knowing me very well, knowing that I'm about to be 86 years old, as you know, in perfect health. I work out three hours a day, couldn't feel better. Uh, and he wrote me this long letter and he said, do not under any circumstances right now take a booster shot, uh, get on a ship with 2,000 people and go to a half a dozen foreign countries. And uh, having great respect for him, I just canceled right on the spot every day. It's too valuable. But that is a source of awesome information. It's a mm -hmm. free daily newsletter, American Council on Science and Health, ACSH. You can just go to their website, sign up, and every morning, you get four or five absolutely marvelous uh, stories about uh, medicine, science, and health. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. I'll include a link to that under the web. So, you know, it's interesting, Jay. I mean, taking the injection and then getting on a ship with lots of people when your immune system is weakened for the two weeks after the injection sounds like a recipe for disaster. <laughs> well, he, this is a, a very close friend, known him for years, a brilliant scientist, he wasn't giving me advice. He was telling me in no uncertain terms, do not do this. Yeah, yeah. And you might have heard that the Australian Open tennis match, I think it was seven of the top leading players all had to drop out because they were completely exhausted. Then you see heart attacks. And in one Ontario hospital, after the fourth mandatory vaccination, they had to have four of them to stay in their job. Three of the young doctors died. And now, of course, they're making all kinds of excuses. Oh, he died of this or that. But apparently, the susceptibility to other things increases during that period as well. So, yeah, it, it's a bloody disaster. <laughs> well, one last thing, if you have it in front of you, Mike, because I read it in one of your articles, was a very uh, fascinating quote by Ayn Rand. Uh, Ayn Rand is the uh, Russian uh, immigrant to the United States who wrote Atlas Shrugged and a number of other uh, terrific novels that led people to understand the importance of their uh, personal freedom. Do you have that in front of you, Mike? You're talking about uh, her um, view on rights? Yes. Okay, yeah, I do. Uh, according to Rand, a right is a moral principle defining and sanctioning a man's freedom of action in a social context. There is only one fundamental right, a man's right to his own life. Life is a process of self-sustaining and self-generating action. 
The concept of a right pertains only to action, specifically to freedom of action. It means freedom from physical compulsion, coercion, or interference from other men. So given that definition, I might just add that there's no such thing as a right to have a comfortable living or living wage or equality of outcome. As long as there's no force or coercion being used against you, your rights are not being violated. So obviously Mm -hmm. under that sort of scenario, there wouldn't be a welfare state or entitlements if we Mm -hmm. follow that definition of hers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just so that listeners can actually check up more on the work that you're doing. Again, I refer them to restoreouramericanrepublic.org. Can they actually donate to help you with this work, Mike? Well, what I'd like them to do is they can donate their email. So I can, uh, the book will be coming out in October. I'd like to get people's email and just kind of give them progress reports, how we're doing to develop it. And then when it comes out, I'll say, you know, the book's available for anyone who like it. In addition, they'll get a, uh, a free download of uh, the previous book that I did, uh, Solving America's Greatest Conflict, the Public Interest Versus Private Rights. And that's a real good introduction to the central issue here that's allowed the entrenchment of these rather evil people and very bad ideas. So mm-hmm. I think that would be a way that they could contribute and really help if they would you know, be willing to uh, do that. Yeah, it's amazing to see so many issues that are actually related to this this conflict between individualism and collectivism. You know, I never realized that they're all kind of interconnected. Yeah, it was. It took a long time to really understand it. It was not something that just kind of fell out of the sky in my, in my yeah. lab. Wow. Well, that's great, Mike. We had a really interesting and very educational interview. So this has been our interview with Mike Gamel, founder and president of Restore Our American Republic, or ROAR, that you can learn about on the web at restoreouramericanrepublic.org. And I take it, Mike, people can put in an email address to be kept up to date? Yes, there's a little sign-in place there that on the uh, homepage. They put in their email and they'll, as they say, they'll get Uh, notices of how the book's coming along and uh, and they can also get that free download if they're interested in solving America's greatest conflict. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm going to do that right after our show. (laughs) So this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.